0: There are different things one can do with a sermon or a reflection on a Sunday morning, and there are several categories that you know, I could I could put the different ones I do into. Some are about personal, spiritual, and ethical quandaries. Some are about history and knowing the tradition. Some are about you know, specific theological ideas, such as the nature of God or the nature of good and evil, and and so on and so forth. There are you know, one or two more. And this morning you're getting a little bit of everything. A little history, a little personal reflection, uh, or how to deal with some personal challenges. Uh, and a little bit of thought, though, very little about the nature of evil. If I start with the notion of satisfaction. It was once said, That religion has two purposes, to satisfy people and to dissatisfy them. At the same time. (laughs) And those of us who do a lot of social justice work engage in a lot of the dissatisfaction side of that. But it's also important to look at the satisfaction side. How do we make our lives fulfilled? How do we live so that we're satisfied with how we've lived? That the things in our lives are going the way we want them to go. There's nothing wrong with wanting satisfaction in life. And that's the theme I'm going to explore this morning. What is satisfaction and what is its opposite complacence and Use a story about a bit of William Ellery Channing's life to make that clear. How can be satisfied without becoming complacent? That is to say, stop taking on new challenges. Now Channing, as I mentioned, was one of the founders of organized American Unitarianism, although he tried not to be. He really thought of himself as a kind of Christian, be in fellowship with other Christians even if they had a different idea about the nature of God and Jesus than he did. He was a Unitarian. Jesus was a man, a teacher, a son of God, but not in any special sense that anyone else couldn't be. He had to be persuaded to take on the role as one of the most important leaders to move to the split between the Trinitarian Congregationalists and the Unitarian Congregationalists. In Massachusetts, which as they all knew was the center of the universe. Boston in particular. Channing knew this even though he was born in Rhode Island. Well, first some definitions. What is satisfaction? I went looking in Webster's unabridged dictionary and found I could read the definitions to you and that would fill up the whole 20 or 25 minutes. In brief, satisfaction, complete fulfillment of need or want, attainment of desired, of what is desired, and contentment and gratification. Dissipation of doubt or ignorance, that is to say conviction or enlightenment. Satisfaction, is a positive and worthy goal for living. While pleasure and mental or physical comfort are part of satisfaction, there is also an element of overcoming mental or physical or spiritual limitations. Conviction, that is to say, knowing for something for certain, and enlightenment are serious and difficult achievements. In themselves, of course, they lead to new and further goals, as Simone Bile, who is a French religious thinker, who died during the Second World War in a situation of great distress, wrote in one of her journals, if we are suffering illness, poverty, or misfortune, we think that we shall be satisfied the day it ceases. But there, too, we know it is false. So soon as one has got used to not suffering, one wants something else. That is to say, Satisfaction isn't a stopping point. Complacence is different from satisfaction. Here, in brief, is what I found in the dictionary calm or secure satisfaction with oneself or lot, or self satisfaction. And also an easier inclination to please others. So complacence is a limited and not so deep feeling as satisfaction. It is in one sense an easy sense of feeling okay, and in the other it is a willingness to let others judge and to follow their judgment. It does not point to self-transcendence or continued growth. Rather, it abandons self-criticism for the easy, self-satisfaction, but as one writer Agnes Replier put it, Self-satisfaction, if as buoyant as gas, has an ugly trick of collapsing when full-blown. And facts are strong things that refuse to melt away in the sunshine of a smile. So complacence or self-satisfaction is limited or limiting, and in its comfortableness, it dulls a desire to go further and to contrast. in contrast, true satisfaction demands that we go beyond who we are now, even if we like that and like where we are now. And overcoming doubt opens a person up to and points to new goals and possibilities. Conviction and enlightenment extend the range of the individual self in action and in interaction with others. How William Ellery Channing, who lived from 1780 to 1842, dealt with the issue of slavery as a manifestation of evil will make clear and concrete what so far has been a matter of abstract definition. Now Channing was kind of the classic minister, devoting his life to study and the preaching of truth and understanding, spending many hours in deep, thought, and writing. He also spent much of his life trying to avoid conflict. He had to be persuaded in 1825 to preach his now famous sermon, Unitarian Christianity, which made clear and irreversible the split between the Unitarians and the other Congregationalists. He then declined the request that he be president of the newly formed American Unitarian Association, still hoping that a separate denomination would not be necessary. He approached slavery in much the same way. As slavery became the defining issue of his time, and he agreed that slavery was wrong. In fact, he'd lived for part of his young life in the South and had seen it firsthand. He was convinced in his sense that the human being could so develop morally and could so imitate the character of Christ that it was a matter of moral persuasion rather than action that would end slavery. Moral growth of the slaveholders to recognize that slavery was wrong and give it up. He viewed slavery as an individual rather than a moral problem. Now it is true that Channing was one of the initiators of the Benevolent Fraternity of Churches in 1834, which established a ministry at large to the poor in Boston. But it was a ministry of some charity, education, and moral uplift. Not an effort to change the conditions under which the poor lived in terms of changing economic relationships, not an effort to challenge the structure of the mercantile society that dominated Boston. One could be free in spirit while in chains, he actually declared that. The place of the laboring classes of which he wrote need not be changed but individual members of those classes could be raised up to the moral level of the mercantile class. The duty of the upper classes was to provide moral uplift and example to the poor. The early canning doesn't come off too well by our standards today. Now he spent his entire career at one church, the Federal Street Church in Boston. Now the Arlington Street Church. And this had been founded not as a, Rich Persons Church as it became, but as a congregation of Scotch-Irish Presbyterians who were domestic servants. In less than a century, however, it had become one of the city's most prestigious congregations. And in 1803, after Channing finished his studies at Harvard, the Federal Street Church and the Brattle Street Church, at that time the two of the most prestigious churches in Boston, competed for the services of the most promising young graduate of Harvard. Channing had always had poor health from childhood so he accepted the invitation from Federal Street because it looked like it would be a less demanding job. But with that move and with his marriage Channing moved into society with the great big capital boldface S. He lived on Mount Vernon Street near Louisburg Square on Beacon Hill an extremely prestigious address. His congregation was made up now not of servants, but of merchants and lawyers and other business people. He focused on his study, on learning, on pious living, and those characteristics, learning pious living and his eloquence, earned him the respect of all Unitarians and of other religiously liberal persons. And when Ralph Waldo Emerson and the next generation of Unitarian ministers complained about corpse-cold Unitarianism, he and the others always excluded Channing from their criticisms. Most of the abolitionists who didn't think slavery was a matter of moral persuasion but of a necessary matter of social change Uh, continued to respect him and urged him to join their cause, even as he continued to argue that only the moral enlightenment of the slaveholder would end slavery. The religiously and politically radical transcendentalists, Theodore Parker, Margaret Fuller, Emerson, and others, considered him their intellectual and spiritual mentor, even as they were frustrated with his unwillingness. To speak out forcefully against slavery and join them in their efforts, and they wanted him to join their efforts not just because of his connections to people of power, but because they genuinely expect, respected the depth of his thought, and preaching, and teaching, and the substantial charity work which he did engage. But charity work not work that would change the structures of power that created poverty and sustained slavery. The abolitionist Lydia Child asked Channing repeatedly to join the cause and was so put off by his negative response to her, her request that he take a leadership role in the abolitionist movement that she muttered, he would carry his cloak on his arm for fear of a change in temperature. James Burney, who was born in Ireland, came to the U.S. and lived in the South, proposed that an abolitionist party be established and Channing be its head. He turned them down. He criticized the abolitionists for identifying themselves as good and their opponents as evil. He later softened that position and said towards the end of his life, quote, my tendency is to turn away from the contemplation of evils. He finally started shifting when Samuel May, a Unitarian minister held in only slightly less esteem than Channing was, criticized him for his not getting involved in the abolitionist work. So By the late 1830s, it was harder and harder to turn away from the evils and he began to praise the goals of the abolitionists, as well as continuing to criticize their rhetoric and their tactics. And when Elijah Lovejoy was murdered while defending his printing press in Alton, Illinois, where he published an abolitionist paper, Channing participated in a memorial rally in Boston. But the real turning point for Channing was the death of his dear friend Charles Fallon and the burning and sinking of the ship Lexington in Long Island Sound in January 1840. Now, the most famous story about Charles Fallon was introducing the Christmas tree. He may have introduced it to Cambridge, but that's not what was really important about Charles Fallon. He was trained as an architect and a legal scholar in Germany. And was also a Unitarian minister. How he fit those all in at a young age, I don't know, but he was clearly a brilliant polymath. But he was also a political progressive, one would say a radical and he had to flee to the United States. And here his scholarship was so substantial that Harvard appointed him to teach German at the college. And he married into the Cabot family. You know the old line about the Cabots speak only, the lodges speak only to the Cabots and the Cabots speak only to God. So he married into one of the high class families of Boston, but it didn't soften his politics at all. He was an avid abolitionist speaking out and in 1835, Harvard refused to renew his appointment as a professor because of his abolitionism. So he became Interim Minister of All Souls Unitarian Church in New York City. And then he was approached by residents of the eastern part of Lexington, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston, to be minister of a new church they were starting there because the population in East Lexington had grown so much that they thought they should have their own church and not go to the first parish. They petitioned the town council, because churches were still tax-supported at this point. They petitioned the town council for a share of taxes early on. And they refused to split the taxes, so Fallon said, why not raise your own money? The Unitarians are part of the establishment. They were used to having tax-supported churches in those days. So they found out they could raise enough money to build a building, and Fallon designed it. He'd been trained as an architect. He was doing this while living in New York and serving as a minister there. He designed a church with eight sides. (sighs) <sighs> and it is still sa- standing on Massachusetts Avenue in Lexington, Massachusetts, where it is known as the Fallen Church and has a large and active congregation. He was sailing home from New York for the dedication of the building and at his installation as minister of that new church when the ship caught fire and sank and he died at sea. Fallen's friends were distraught. Channing sought to hold a memorial service at the Federal Street Church, but the board of the church refused to allow him to do it. So he preached on the Sunday, a morning, on a Sunday service, the sermon that he had planned on his friend's death anyway, and from that point on was pretty much kept from entering the pulpit ever again. In that sermon, Channing asserted that there was suffering in the world in order to bring out the best in human beings. And that had clearly happened in his younger friend, Charles Fallen. And then he turned his words on himself in criticism. Sometimes the religious man, he said, with good intentions, but wanting wisdom and strength tries to palliate the evils of life to cover its dark features, to exaggerate its transient pleasures. Unlike the preacher of the sermon, Channing, Fallen had actively fought evil and publicly. And Channing went on to say that the lessons to be learned from Fallen's life and death was that each person should live so as to be an example to others by countering evil and achieving good. And near the end of the sermon, Channing said, So live that survivors may shed over you tears of hope as well as of sorrow, that you may find in their remembrance of you springs of comfort, testimonies to religion, encouragements to goodness, and proofs and pledges of immortality. So live that the oppressed, the poor, and forsaken may utter blessings in your name. The whole sermon really upset the merchants and the lawyers and the people who sat in his very comfortable congregation and they arranged so that the assistant minister would do most of the preaching from thenceforth. Andrew Delbanco, a professor of humanities and American culture and history at Columbia, wrote a book that focuses on this turning point in Channing's life. Putting it in the context of the Teachings of self culture and the ability to develop oneself that was much of Channing's preaching and was not Channing's alone in that time. But it was something that in a liberal and affluent segment of society could be looked at realistically. Everyone can grow and learn and develop themselves. And Del Banco says of the sermon that Channing gave Channing's faith insists that man's inner turmoil is the gift of God that God lives in the human soul, and that man's goal is the transformation of this indwelling principle into energy. The sermon achieves a synthesis between theology and poetic lament. It not only celebrates fallen as a godly man of action, but shows that goodness must be active. It is a significant work of American literature. And this is is what struck me in Del Banco's commentary. It is a significant work of American literature because it grants us a rare glimpse of a substantial thinker at the moment that he changes the course of his life. And Channing didn't change the course of his life at that point. He only lives a little under another two years, but those years were different. He became politically active in opposition to slavery. <coughs> And the majority of his parishioners, accustomed to the comfort from his sermons, one might say the easy satisfaction rather than dissatisfaction of the challenge, were angered and preferred not to listen to him anymore. So a few months later, well, he was preaching everywhere because people wanted to hear him. Now that he was freed of his obligations in Boston, he was invited to preach all over Massachusetts. So a few months later, he preached at the ordination of another minister, John Sullivan Dwight, in western Massachusetts, in Northampton. And he said, wait not to be backed by numbers. Wait not till you are sure of the echo from the crowd. Preach not with selfish regard. Actually repudiating the avoidance of conflict that he had lived with most of his life. In 1841, he preached a eulogy for another highly regarded Unitarian minister, Joseph Tuckerman. Tuckerman was the first minister at large to the poor of Boston under the aegis of the Benevolent Fraternity of Churches, which Channing and a few friends started because Tuckerman's health was too weak to preach anymore, so they wanted to give him a respectable job and enable him to give up his church in a town, Chelsea, also on Boston Harbor, but north of Boston. Tuckerman took the charge to minister to the poor quite seriously and built up one of the first social service agencies ever in this country of any size. It exists to this day and is now known as the Unitarian Universalist Urban Ministry. And when he preached that sermon, he finally appreciated how Tuckerman had pushed way beyond the original idea of preaching the poor, doing a little moral uplift, doing some education to actually trying to change the actual conditions in which they lived, which Tuckerman and the associate ministers that joined him in this work had attempted to do. And in this sermon, Channing says, quote, we hope to keep our little circle pure amidst general impurity. This is like striving to keep our particular house healthy while infection is raging around us. He wouldn't have said that 10 years earlier. Had Tuckerman died 10 years earlier. He was repudiating the comfort and safety of his upper-class position in the city of Boston. In the year before his death, he wrote a two-volume essay titled The Duties of the Free States that essentially called upon the non-slave states to do whatever they needed to do to end slavery. He talked about the seizing of a ship Creole that was carrying escaped slaves that had been recaptured. Or, I mean, the ship Creole was carrying the slaves to freedom and it was captured and they were returned to slavery. And one of the things Channing says, it may have been legal, but it was wrong and should not be allowed to happen. Even the law must give way to human rights. Now, slavery was the incarnation of evil in William Ellery Channing's America. He chose at last to confront it and in doing so to admit the failings of his earlier years. Near the end of his life in 1842, he declared that he was satisfied with that choice he had made late in his life. And the statement that Del Banco makes in his book about Channing gave me the title this morning. It was Satisfaction, Not Complacence. Channing had lived with some complacency earlier in his life. He began to shift in the 1830s, and then he took a major turn when someone he admired and respected died, and he realized what a different life he could live, even as he was getting older, and having it in poor health all his life, being elderly, even though he wasn't all that old. He was 62 when he died. So the achievement of true satisfaction is to be found in a life of integrity. That's my takeaway from this story. It does not require a particular set of beliefs. It does not require a particular level of education. It does not require a particular way of making a living just requires a life of integrity and Channing's life gives an example of getting to that place even from a high level of achievement but moving on and struggling and finally getting to a place that he could not have imagined earlier in his life. True satisfaction requires a person to keep his or her goal or ideal or ultimate concern at the central defining place of life. As Channing warned one preacher, his mind might be frittered away by endless details. And so it is with our lives. We can be so engaged in the business of getting through every day that it can obscure the purpose or purposes with which we want to live. And true satisfaction requires a purpose in life. Channing's lifelong purpose was to preach the truth, and truly he fulfilled that purpose throughout his life. All well, his study, his parish work, everything he did, was defined by the purpose of preaching the truth. And he sought to learn and to grow. And when new facts presented himself, themselves to him, he did change his mind. He did change how he lived. That search eventually led him from his study where he loved his books and his conferences with people and his ability to write long and learned tomes. He did not call his sermon sermons. He called them discourses. And they were. But that search eventually led him from his study to the streets of his city and nation. A true satisfaction requires that we never be self-satisfied, easily satisfied with ourselves. No success or achievement, no matter how pleasing or widely recognized, can be allowed to get in the way of of this truth. And another aspect of this truth is this. Each individual is incomplete. Channing spoke about the great potential in the human being, but he never asserted that anyone but Jesus had ever achieved it. But that's why he used Jesus as a model. He said, we can work towards this. We can do this. That's pretty ambitious, morally and spiritually ambitious. But he, So he lived in this 19th century milieu of self-culture, but was radically transformed in how he approached it by the death of his friend Charles Fallen. And Channing's life is an example to us because he was willing to be changed by the life and death of another person. What he had been slow to realize suddenly became clear that individual moral development cannot alone satisfy a person's humanity, his or anyone else's. In the mid-20th century, Victor Frankl, the concentration camp survivor and psychotherapist put it this way the purpose of life is not self-fulfillment but self transcendence true satisfaction does not mean downplaying one's achievements or abilities it means recognizing them accepting them and using them to develop even further for one's own sake and for the sake of others In balancing concern with oneself and concern with the limits of oneself, Channing came to be an effective, powerful advocate for the abolition of slavery. He also came to be at peace with himself even when he was barred for the most part from the pulpit of the church he had served for his entire career. William Ellery Channing's Life and Thought give us an outstanding example of the search for truth pursued to the end of life. His personal reward was satisfaction and not complacence. His last years were a bit lonely, but they were honest. So the search for satisfaction is a legitimate task in life. Let us remember, however, that is not achieved by coming to an easy satisfaction with oneself as one is now. The person who would experience true satisfaction can never be complacent. Let us all live with this challenge for all of our days. Blessed be. Amen.